Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Peter does something at the beginning of this letter that you typically associate with Paul. He gives a sort of densely packed theological exposition. There's a lot in these opening words for us to pull apart and to meditate on. If you listen just to his opening, just the way that he opens his letter, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. If you pause right there, Peter has already given us fodder for a number of sermons. If you look carefully at his words, in addressing you as the scattered believers, the chosen exiles, he says that you've obtained a faith equal of equal standing with ours. Peter, who followed Christ closely, One of the great apostles says that the faith that you have is of equal standing with his. Ordinarily, we don't think of ourselves that way. We don't compare ourselves to heroes of the faith and think, well, my faith is like Peter's faith. Our faith, in comparison, seems very small. But Peter doesn't see it that way. Just as in chapter 5 of 1 Peter 1, when he addressed the elders of the churches, he referred to them as his fellow elders as equals, as as brothers in Christ. Here, he speaks to believers and says, you have a faith of equal standing. Well, how can that be? How can it be? Well, it has to do with where the faith comes from. He says we have a faith of equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. What we have by faith is the righteousness of Christ handed to us. Some of us don't get more of that righteousness and some less. All of the righteousness of Christ by faith is applied to you in order to save you. And in that sense, all our faith is of equal standing in that all our faith gives us this righteousness of Christ. But whose righteousness exactly does Peter say it is? He says the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in doing that, And referring to Jesus that way, he undermines an argument that would come later on, and one that you still hear today, which is that Christians later claimed that Jesus was God, but Jesus himself and his original followers never believed such a thing. They never believed in the deity of Jesus. That was something Christians invented later. Well, clearly, in the way that Peter addresses Jesus, Peter sees Jesus as divine. He doesn't see it as sacrilege to address Jesus in this way. So already at the very beginning of the letter, there's so much rich stuff. You could preach this stuff, but we're not going to. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. We're going to plunge even deeper because in the next few lines, Peter is going to give us a kind of capsule summary of the gospel. He's going to remind us what's going on, like what the work of God in our lives is. And that's the thing that I want us to spend some time thinking about. Kind of uh, dwelling on. Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, 
by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now in our translation, that's one sentence. And that is, we would recognize a kind of Pauline sentence in the sense that it goes on and on and on. Right? There's a lot of stuff packed in there. But the fact that it's rendered the way that it is, I think, is helpful because what it suggests to us is all of the different things that are being addressed here go together. It all fits together. Peter is expressing one idea, not a bunch of ideas, one idea that has a lot of parts that go into it. So let's take a look at those parts. As we do this, you're going to see this is a summary, an overview of the whole work of redemption. He begins by saying his divine power has granted this to us. His divine power. All that we have, we have because of God's power. God does all the work of salvation. God does all the work. It's all through his power, not through ours, that we have salvation. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, everything that was ours, that was lost because of sin, is restored to us by grace. Everything that we lost. Sin led to death. It led to corruption. It changed everything. It it destroyed. It infected. It broke everything. But by his divine power, all things that pertain to life, to godliness, are being restored to us. All that we were meant to be is being handed back to us through the knowledge of him who called us. Through the knowledge of him who called us. Salvation comes through the knowledge of God in Christ. Jesus says, I am the way. It's knowledge of Christ specifically that is the channel through which this divine power flows. It's interesting, though, the way that he describes how this knowledge comes through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. One of the things we're often at pains to emphasize at grace is the continuity of Old Testament and New Testament. I think all too often Christians imagine like we're New Testament people and the Old Testament really doesn't have any relevance to us. It's like some boring history and a bunch of genealogies and stuff that that was sort of a prelude to the, the really interesting things of the Bible. But I hope that one of the things you'll see over time is that that's not what the Old Testament is. That what the New Testament shows us in the light of day plainly, the Old Testament reveals to us in, in types in signs and in shadows. The Old Testament preaches the gospel. The Old Testament exudes grace through the precious promises of God that are given in his covenants with his people. It is a salvation that comes to us through covenant, through a succession of promises. This is how God gives us the knowledge. What that means is that our salvation is covenantal, and that we as Christians are a covenantal people. We're a people of promise. A people to whom promises have been made. A people who are looking to God to keep the promises that he's made. 
His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's striking. But the point of all of this, the point of this restoration of all of these covenant promises is so that you can become a partaker of the divine nature, to partake in the divine, to, uh, as Calvin says in commenting on this line, he says, it, it is, so to speak, to deify us that God has done these things. But that's an interesting idea that we're going to need to dig into a little bit, and we'll do that in just a minute. For now, though, I want you to think in your mind, to be a partaker of the divine nature, what does it mean? Well, it means that God, by His grace, restores His image in us. He restores the image of God in us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that when God made us, He made us after His image. And it lists specifically three ways in which He made us after His image. In knowledge, in righteousness, and in holiness. And when you think about the effects of sin... It's helpful as a starting point to think about it in relation to those things. The way in which sin has affected, distorted our knowledge has taken away from us our righteousness and prevents us from leading holy lives. All of these things are losses of the divine nature, losses of our created purpose. This is what we're being restored to by grace so that we can escape. He says right at the end of the sentence, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. To be saved, to be restored by grace is also to escape from condemnation, to escape from the trap of the sinful world, the corruption that sin has brought to our natures. The corruption that is in the world, he says, because of sinful desire. And in those words, right at the end, encapsulates something very profound about the nature of the world that we live in and the nature of the people that we are. We are what we are because of desire. What drives us as human beings is longing. Every great thing that we've ever done, whether it was great and wonderful or great and terrible, was done, first of all, from the root of a deep desire, a deep longing to see it happen, whether it was to... Uh, a longing to glorify God or a longing to make a name for ourselves. Human action comes out of desire. And the corrupt world that we live in is the result of desire. It's the result of sinful desire. The problem with the world and our hearts is our sin. Our longings have been misdirected, have been distorted by sin. Let's think about that the effect of sin on human nature and what it means to be human. I don't know if you've ever contemplated this. Like, what does it mean to say that you're a human being? Sometimes we look at people's actions and we say, well, that's very inhumane, not very uh, human. But by what standard can we judge what it means to be human? Like, what is humanity in its essence? What does it mean to be a human being? To be a human being, when we look around, we see is to be uh, flawed. Right? We say to, to err is human. To be imperfect is quintessentially human. When we think about what it means to be human, oftentimes the, the things we think of are things the Bible associates with sin. So that when we think about humanity, we think about 
sinful human nature. The Bible, when it thinks about what humanity is, has something different in mind. All of the longings that we possess, the fact that our lives are ruled by desire, is not an accident. But God has made us this way, to be people who desire, people who have a capacity for love. But because of sin, our love is misdirected. Our, our love goes in the wrong directions. We value the wrong things. But if you think about all of those loves, all of those disordered passions, those desires going in the wrong direction, and you try to think, which is the worst? Like, where is the example? What, what could we point to and say, like, this is the worst of all of our misdirected longings, all of our sinful desires? I think Scripture would tell us the worst of a very bad lot is our desire to be God. Which is a strange kind of answer, because I'm guessing not many of us have ever thought to ourselves, well, I wish I were God. I wouldn't call it that way. I wouldn't, wouldn't say, well, you know, I'd be happy if only I were God. And yet, when we think about what we'd like to have, the things that we'd like to have are things the Bible associates with divine power. With divine power. If you go back and read the story of Babel, Genesis 11, and we've talked about this before, you kind of scratch your head. It, it, it's hard to know what the sin of these people is that leads God to confuse their languages because what they're basically doing is uh, coming together in a community uh, to work on a common goal, which is to build a great building to make a name for themselves in this great city. And God punishes them. And you think, well, is God like against urban planning? Is God more of a country God and, and it doesn't like all this urban stuff? No. I mean, it's, it's that idea of making the name for themselves, of, of glorifying themselves. Because the desire to glorify yourself is one of the ways in which human beings seek to be like God. If you've ever had to read your Milton, you know Milton's Satan, like his famous line is, is that it would be better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And when you read it, I mean, he's, he's a kind of hero, Satan is, in, in Paradise Lost. He's a sort of anti-hero, I guess. Like he will stand on principle. He would rather be in hell if that's where he has to be to, to have control over his own life than to be dependent and subordinate and have to serve in heaven. And that's something we can sympathize with. We want to rule ourselves. We want to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. We don't want to be ruled by a creator. We don't want to have to defer to someone else's idea of how we should live. And in that, we have a desire to be like God. In the garden, when Eve has that conversation with the serpent, which is like the first conversation the Bible records for us. The very first time people kind of chatted back and forth. The promise that the serpent makes is interesting, right? Because Eve has been told that if you sin, you die. But now the serpent says, no, 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 no. If you sin, you become like God. If you do this, you become like God. And the serpent says to her, this is the nature of all power. God has given you a rule. God is telling you this is what's right and this is what's wrong. You just need to defer to him because he's God and you're not. And all he's really trying to do is hold you down. He's afraid that if you eat of the tree, you'll become like him. 
And in that temptation, the serpent speaks to something we can recognize as a central longing of humanity. We're not content to be what we are. We're not content to be human. We're trying to overcome the human condition constantly. If you think about the the history of human progress, what we call progress tends to be the, the ways in which, through our ingenuity, we've been able to overcome what it means to be human. The limitations that humans of the past thought of as quite essentially human, we free ourselves from those limitations. We call it progress. Freedom means being free from the constraints of our humanity. And so when you read Peter say, there's a promise in the gospel that you would become a partaker of the divine nature, what that may sound like Peter is saying is, guess what? If you have faith in Jesus Christ and that divine power is at work, then you will get the desire of your heart. You will get to stop being human. Stop being merely human. And you will become like God. You will become divine. But it's interesting, Peter doesn't say that we become partakers of the divine being. He doesn't say we become part of the Godhead, but rather partakers of the divine nature, of which he has in mind something else, this idea that, that men and women at creation were made in the image of God. So to be a partaker of the divine nature is, in a sense, to partake of the divine attributes that theologians call communicable, They're the attributes, the things that are true about God, but are true about human beings as well. So that when we we talk about uh, the omniscience of God, his all-knowingness, that's not really something that translates to humans because of our finitude. But we can talk about the holiness of God, and we can talk about our own holiness as well. It's possible for us to be holy. It communicates. It, 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 It transfers over the gap. So by virtue of being human, we partake of the divine nature. But sin robs us of that. A lot of the things that would lead us to think that hope means becoming more than human are based on the fact that we have a low view of what it means to be human, to be merely human. And oftentimes, and especially I would say in Reformed circles, you would think that if anybody has a low view of humanity, it would have to be us. Right? And you go back in the history of the Reformation, you look at the Reformers, and it's like their favorite color was black. They had the pointiest beards in history. They wore those scary skull caps. They believed in total depravity. So clearly, nobody could have had a lower view of humanity than they did. It's not exactly right. They had a low view of sin. And they had an honest view of the effects of sin on human nature. But they had a high view of what it meant to be human. Because they had a biblical view, and the Bible has a very high view of what it means to be human. To be human is to be made in the image of God. To be human is to be given dominion over creation. To be human is is to be God's viceroy, as it were, in creation. The highest of all creation. That's something glorious that God has built into humanity. The good news of the gospel is not that God gives us the power to stop being human and start being God. The good news of the gospel is that God became human so that by his grace we could start being human again too. 
grace is restoring to us our humanity. God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is making us into the humans we were meant to be, giving us the humanity that sin took away from us. And that restored humanity has consequences in how we live. As God restores to us our humanity, he's not just changing our nature, he's changing our behavior. Because our actions flow from nature. And restored humanity, according to Peter, bears fruit in obedience. Listen to what Peter says as he continues. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you lack these qualities, if this kind of obedience isn't true of you, then Peter says you're like a person who is so nearsighted that you're blind, that you're blind to the fact that Christ has ransomed you from your sin. He's saying something similar to what Peter says when he warns us not after having been freed from our sins to return back into captivity and bondage and servitude to sin, but instead to live differently. To live differently. We are subject to disordered desire, to to, uh, distorted humanity, and because of that, Because of that conflict within us, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith. To supplement your faith. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, that makes me uncomfortable. I start worrying about Peter, like worrying that he doesn't believe in salvation by faith alone. Because he thinks faith is something we supplemented. And I'm pretty sure I've said before from this pulpit that faith isn't something that needs to be supplemented by some action of yours. So we need to figure out what it is that Peter's talking about. He says, supplement your faith with virtue. With virtue. And what does he mean by that? Being good. Being good. Keeping the moral law. Doing what is right. That's a high standard. Supplement it with virtue. With knowledge. We should be growing in knowledge of Christ. So he talked about the way that that knowledge saves us. And now we're being told we should grow In knowledge, we should apply ourselves to understanding Christ more, understanding him as he is revealed in Scripture. We should have self-control. Because the flesh is corrupt, we must discipline the flesh. Live lives of self-control. And steadfastness, he says. We should cultivate faithfulness. Just as Paul says when he says, stand firm. Having done all, stand firm. We should be steadfast in the struggle. We shouldn't give up to sin so easily. Godliness. We should have godliness, he says. We should cultivate godliness. In a sense, not only must we stand firm, but we have to level up. We have to, if we are partakers of the divine nature, we have to do the work of God. and have brotherly affection, real community, 
an affection for one another as brothers, even though the reality is we're not. We're many different families with many different histories and backgrounds brought together, not by our own choice, and, and, and brought into a family. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but not everybody that God has brought into your family is like compatible with you. Like when God makes a church, he doesn't find a bunch of people who fit well together and say to himself, you know what, they'll be a good match. We'll, we'll make a church out of these people. It's almost the opposite, I think, sometimes. Where God says, you know what, these people will never go together. Let's make a church out of them. And it reflects something about the plan of salvation. Every kindred, every nation, every tribe, God is drawing from throughout the spectrum and calling us all to brotherly affection, and he's not making it easy. Finally, to love. Love. Love which puts the needs of others ahead of oneself. If you think about it, if we talk about like sin nature as disordered desire, like to be loving is to have ordered desire. To desire the right things. To long for the good of others. But the problem is, this sounds like a program of works. It sounds like Peter is saying you were saved by faith and now here's all the stuff you need to do. Congratulations, you're in the club, and here's all of the good things I expect you to do. We know that salvation is not by works, but oftentimes Christians behave as if we're saved by grace and we hold on to our salvation by our works. Right? You stay saved by being good. And now Peter is telling us how to be good. He's giving us a list of things we need to do in order to stay in the good graces of God but it's not that at all. It's not that at all. Works don't save you. Obedience doesn't keep you saved. What obedience does is complete faith. It completes faith. James says this in James chapter 2. James says, when he talks about Abraham, he says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So the faith of Abraham was demonstrated by what he did. You could see that he had faith because he lived that faith. He acted on that faith. Just as Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So something complicated is being addressed here. On the one hand, it's God's divine power that saves us, that keeps us saved, that sanctifies us. And on the other hand, that work bears fruit in our lives. And the fruit is obedience. If faith is the seed, then works are the fruit. And the seed will grow. If there is no fruit, that suggests there is no faith. Because when you become the human you were made to be, you will do the work that you were meant to do. When we preach salvation by grace, by faith alone, we're not saying, doesn't matter what you do. You can be as bad as you want to be because Jesus died for you. You can just do whatever you want. There is a relationship between faith and works. It's just not the one that we typically think. Obedience is a fruit of salvation, not a cause of salvation. If we read a little further, Peter gets into this a little more. He says, therefore, brothers, 
Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If disobedience led to the fall that corrupted our humanity, then obedience ensures that we will never fall. But what does he mean by that? What is he getting at when he talks about calling an election, making that calling an election sure? Is it that you were elected and then called, but you have to somehow maintain that election through your works? No, it's something else. Now, why does he bring up calling an election here? all places. What is the point of this? Because there's a, there's a sense in which I think it can be confusing or incoherent suddenly to, to be told to make your calling and election sure. And at the same time be told, well, no one can know. Like, none of us knows the mind of God. No one knows what, what the, the, the names inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life are. And yet now you're meant to make your calling and election sure. That's enough to drive you crazy. And, and it has. In the history of the church, there have been people obsessed with this anxiety to make their calling and election sure. They thought that they needed to live lives in such a way that uh, somehow they could prove to themselves, they could prove to themselves that they were truly saved, that they were truly chosen by God. But I think the reason why Peter brings up calling and election here and, and relates it to obedience I think there's a couple of of significant connections. First, he takes away from us the interpretation that says that we're saved by grace, we stay saved through our own obedience. The thing that I talked about earlier, sort of, uh, sometimes we'll talk about is relying on your sanctification for your justification, thinking works save you or keep you saved. Like here we're seeing, Peter is going back to and affirming the idea of calling an election that began in 1 Peter with addressing believers as God's chosen exiles, speaking of Christ as the one who was foreknown from the foundation of the world, that we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So Peter is affirming his belief in election and calling that there is behind our experience of salvation something deeper going on, something eternal. So he's not saying, first, have faith, And then once you have faith, start doing works to stay saved. But he takes away something else. Because he is linking calling and election to obedience, he takes away the false comfort of people who live ungodly lives, but then comfort themselves that that's okay because they're chosen by God. It's okay, I can live however I want because I'm elect. This is often a, a, a charge that could be brought against Reformed people, right? that because of our doctrine of election, we can be very antinomian. Like we can say basically, well, you're saved by faith and it doesn't matter how you live because it's all grace and, and obedience doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you live. You can be as bad as you want to be as long as you're in the club. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care how unholy you are because he's chosen you. That leaves a lot out that that the apostles don't leave out. And and there's a kind of absurdity in it if you go back and you you reread Ephesians 1 and you see that we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. 
to be holy and blameless? How can you find comfort in the doctrine of election if you live an ungodly and unholy life, an unrepentant life? You're essentially saying, I was chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy, and it's okay that I'm not holy because I was chosen. No, it doesn't work that way. That's a false comfort. The doctrine of election is meant to give comfort, but not comfort to those who show no fruit of obedience in their lives. There's a metaphor here that I think might be helpful if you think about how it is that you confirm your calling and election. It has to do with uh, pastoral calling. Those of you who can remember back to the spring when I was ordained, uh, know that, that there's, there's a certain process that you go through to become a pastor. At the beginning of that process is sensing a call, like sensing internally that you believe that you're being called into ministry. But when we talk about that, but here's how it doesn't work. You don't decide one day, you know what, I feel like I should be a pastor. And then the next Sunday, we say, you're a pastor. Congratulations. You feel it? There you go. It must be from God. Instead, that calling has to be confirmed. And so we talk about two kinds of calling or, or, or two aspects of the call, the internal and the external. So there's that internal sense of calling, but that needs to be confirmed externally by the church objectively. Right? So you may feel called, but not be called. Right? You may feel called, but not meet God's requirements for office. Right? The, the standards that he sets, the requirements that he sets. And if you feel called, but you don't meet those requirements, then the church could not confirm that calling. And there are other reasons. It could be gifting. It could be temperament, personality. A lot of reasons why the church might look at you and say, you know what? You don't show the fruits of that calling. We can't confirm that calling. Because we believe that when God works, he works through means. If he's called you, he's gifted you. Like, if he does this thing internally, he also has the power to do it externally as well. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think if you think about it that way, you can understand how it could be that you could be chosen before the foundation of the world, and yet in your life, need to have that call confirmed. And it would be confirmed by external evidence. The question is, why would you need it confirmed? So here's who doesn't need your call confirmed. God. You don't need to confirm to God that you have been called and chosen. He knows. He did it. He already knows. So Peter's not telling us this is how you make sure between you and God that you are one of his people. So who needs it confirmed? Well, the person who needs things confirmed is usually the person who doubts them. It's us. It's us. We're the ones who need the confirmation. And Peter is speaking to us, and he's saying, if you apply yourself to these things, to this chain of, of things from virtue to love, you will find confirmation of your calling and election that will comfort you. It will comfort you. I said before that the doctrine of election can be comforting. I should say more than that. It's meant to be comforting. It's the reason we have it. There's no other reason why God would need to pull back the curtain and show us these things except so that when you waver and when you doubt and when you look inside yourself and you say, there's nothing in me that suggests 
that God would love me. There's no goodness in me that suggests that I should be one of His people. That you have something that can comfort you. You can look objectively to the promises of God and His covenants, to that, that anchor of election before the foundation of the world, and you can feel comforted that even though I don't feel it internally, it is real externally. It is holding on to me. And in the same way, our obedience serves to comfort us. Because there are times when, again, we don't feel it. And we take no comfort in old promises. And we take no comfort in election. But we can find comfort in brotherly affection and the love that we have for one another. In our weakness, it gives us signs. It gives us promises. It gives us one another. He gives us obedience. Obedience all around us and encourages us to be obedient in order to comfort us in our trials and in our doubts that He does indeed love us and is indeed working in us. That's the truth, Peter says. It's all from His divine power. He is making you once again a partaker of the divine nature. And as a restored human being made in His image, you should live like Him. You should seek after Christ. And that truth, once it's discovered, it bears repeating over and over again. Therefore, Peter says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter says, I know you already know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And guess what? I'm going to keep telling you because I'm going to die shortly. And not only am I going to tell you till the day I die these truths, but I'm going to make sure that after I'm gone, you will have them over and over again as well. He thinks it's important that this truth that you already know be repeated over and over again. We know the truth. We have the truth. But the greatest danger to those who know the truth is that they forget it. That they forget it. So when we think about the grace of Jesus Christ and we think about our need for it all too often, that's a past tense feeling. We think of grace as something we really needed back then. Then we got saved. And now, not so much. We need reminding. It's easy to know the truth and then forget it, to let it slide from consciousness, to slip from mind. That's one danger. The other danger is not passing the truth down. Having the truth, even living the truth, but not handing it down to others. I don't want to force my beliefs on other people. Let them believe what they want to believe. I'm not going to ram my religion down my kids' throats. I think that's admirable. I don't think you should force your religion on other people. But usually when we say that, we don't mean, I'm going to stop holding guns to people's heads and making them repeat after me the Apostles' Creed. I think it's excessive. It is. You shouldn't. But that's not really what we mean when we say, I'm not going to force my beliefs on others. A lot of times what we mean is, I'm not really going to talk about them with others. 
I'm not going to share them. I'm not, I'm not going to put them out there and then like, like put myself behind them and urge them on others as if they were true. Peter says, I'm going to be the opposite of that. I'm going to put it out there, and I'm going to urge it on you as true, urge it on you as the very words of God, and repeat it over and over again so that you do not forget it. And I'm going to tell you, not only don't forget it, but don't fail to pass it down so that it continues after he's dead, after we are dead, so that it continues. Why? Because reminding is important. Because reminding is important. The solution, so to speak, to our problems is repetition. We don't just need it, we need it. And we need it and we need it. We need it over and over again, repetitively. We need to be constantly reminded. We need to be living in the truth that we know. Living in it. If you think about how much of our worship, how much of what we do here is repetitive, how much of Christian discipleship is repetitive? It's doing the same thing over and over again, what Eugene Peterson calls the long obedience in the same direction. All of that repetition, it's not because we just can't think of new stuff. We don't do the same things in worship every week because like, we've run out of ideas. It's like we really tried. Pastor John and I got together with the liturgy and we're like, let's freshen this up. I can't think of anything. Can you? No, let's just do the same old stuff. No. The reason for the repetition is that God has instituted worship, among other things, as a way to form us, to shape us. And through this repetition, we live in the truth. We live in it. We absorb it. We pass it down. This is the process by which the truth is repeated to us. We don't just worship once and for all. Wouldn't that be good? Like, if we could have a worship service so good that God said, you know what, from now on, you sleep in on Sundays. You guys, last Sunday, you did it. You, you reached the bar, and, and we don't need to keep doing this. You'll never do it better than that. So everybody, just take the rest of your lives off. Congratulations. No. Because the purpose isn't to get it right. The purpose isn't to have the most awesome service so that we don't have to keep doing it. Right? The, the repetition is the point. Like, we're made to worship him, and we need to do it regularly on the day that he's called us to do it, corporately, together, on the Lord's Day, week after week after week. That's the structure of human existence, according to the Bible. You'll never say a prayer so good you won't need to pray again. It's not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of, of your prayers isn't that your prayers are, are, are fancy and thorough. We should pray without ceasing, because we need it. Constantly. We need it. You're not going to read the Bible through cover to cover, and then, like most other books, say, well, I know what that was about. I can move on. Instead, you'll reread it, and you'll meditate, it, meditate on it throughout life. And that repetition, those repeated reminders over time, they shape us. They shape us. They mold us. They make us into the people the Spirit is is fashioning us into being. They produce godliness over time. The habit of godliness over time produces godliness. We need to keep hearing because it is the hearing that shapes the doing. You want to stop just being a hearer of the word and start being a doer of the word. It helps to really hear and listen the word to the word over and over again. Second Peter is a short book. 
It's just three chapters. And as we go through it, you're not going to be getting a lot of new stuff. You're going to be hearing a lot of things that you've heard before. Peter is going to repeat himself. He's going to remind us of things. And he's telling us at the beginning, not only is that uh, going to happen, but it's not accidental, that it's part of the point that he intends to remind you of truths that you already know. So don't tune out. You've heard it, but have you listened? You've heard it, but have you done it? Do you see in your life the fruit of obedience that you've been called to? You ask Peter, why are you doing this? Why are you writing this letter? He tells us to stir you up by way of reminder. The reminding is important, but for Peter, it's a means to an end. He's reminding us to stir us up, to stir us up. As a shepherd of Jesus Christ, Peter seeks to comfort the people of God, and and so do I. But he also wants to stir you up, and so do I. So that we're not complacent. So that we don't feel like, gosh, compared to others, we've got the truth. We're doing pretty good. But instead, that we're stirred up to live the truth that we have. To live it. You're human. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You're a partaker of the divine nature. Peter says, it's time to stir yourself up to action. If you're going to be human, then live like a human. Do the things human beings were created to do. The power of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.